0: If you care about technology and social impact, then you have to read Eugene Wei's Status as a Service. It is a very long read, but it clearly breaks down how humans have co-evolved in terms of their social networks together with computer networks. And I thought this appearance on the 20 Minute VC was the clearest summation of it I've
1: ever heard. For those that haven't read it, a little bit of context on what you mean by status as a service, and then we're gonna dig in a little bit more.
0: So at the time I wrote the piece, you know, what led to it was that I was curious about social networks. I never really worked directly on social networking or social media, but they were some of the fastest growing, largest companies in the history of the world. So I was very intrigued by their dynamics. You know, in the networking world, there was this Metcalf's law, which just says, you know, the usefulness or value of a network. It's like sort of exponentially rises in proportion to the number of nodes on the network. And so if you believe that, my thought was the largest social network should just run away from everybody and all the other networks should die out because they would have so many more nodes that if it rises in value exponentially, there'd be no catching them. But that didn't happen. What we saw, we saw social networks come and go. You know, we had the MySpaces of the world, the Friendsters. We would see even the largest incumbent social networks sometimes stop growing. And so I was like, why does that happen? Why do networks grow and also stop growing? There must be some other mechanism that explains it. So status as a service posits, there are two things that explain a lot of this. One is that humans are just hardwired to seek status, or as you Brits call it, status, which sounds more classy. (laughs) The second is that humans will tend to gravitate towards the most efficient path to gaining status. And that if you accepted those, one of the mechanisms and maybe the primary mechanism by which a lot of networks grow is that they figured out how to create... a status game within their networks and how to teach their users essentially to play that game. And so the mechanism by which that happens is there's usually some unit or token of status. You know, I use the uh, crypto metaphor a lot, so it's like issuing a status token. The most common way that is issued is in the form of likes, but also follows. Combine those two into distribution. Post a photo on Instagram, you will write a status update and people will react to it. You write a tweet, it goes viral You get distribution and more followers. And so that's essentially the status game. By adopting a singular feed as the primary architecture for social media, you also create sort of a visible semi-public leaderboard. Because if you're trying to figure out how to go viral, what you can do is just look at what other people are posting that's viral because the viral things they post will be amplified by the algorithm into your feed. And people are very good at mimicking other people and studying their strategies. Eventually they will start copying. And so you get this like kind of runaway growth status seeking. Now, that's not the only reason people post on social media. I just say that's one of the mechanisms. So you know that saying, come for the tool, stay for the network. I think Chris Dixon formulated it about network products, including social networks. I tend to think that there's a generalizable form of that, which doesn't have to be tool. It's just come for X, stay for the network. And in this case, I'm just saying one of the X's that's out there is status. You could also say, for example, that in the crypto world, come for X, stay for, I don't know, the crypto network. The X right now might be NFTs. People are like, wow, I, I could get rich collecting these pieces of digital art. And the hope would be that in the long run, those people stick around, and you know, on-ramp onto crypto as a broader thing. But you usually need something, right? You need something before the network forms because by definition, in the beginning, the network has very few nodes on it. So what is X? And so I'm just saying status is one of those.
1: So when we think about status as a service then, as we said, lots of people have kind of pontificated around it. You've seen them pontificate and share their thoughts around it. What are your biggest misunderstanding that people have around status as a service is?
0: I think a lot of people have a visceral reaction to the title and they think that I'm advocating for building status games into products without any qualification. And I'm actually, you know, note in the piece that you know, one of the problems with status games is that they can feel inherently empty and they can make people feel bad about themselves. There's a reason we've attached a negative valence to the term status or status-seeking. I had a sentence in the piece very early on that says people are status-seeking monkeys. Tongue-in-cheek in a way, but I do think people, people don't appreciate being called status-seekers. We have a, a very negative connotation to that. I actually think there is a more positive way to frame this, which is what I tell people who come to me and say, hey, how do I apply... This essay to the product I'm working on. And what I say is that, look, I think people are hardwired to seek status and we can't get away from that. However, if we accept that, we can then say that we need to choose what we want to reward in the world. Like another way of saying that people are status seeking, like the flip side of it is to say we should make the right things high status. Like if we say that we want teaching as a profession to be high status, like we can do that as a society. If we say we want public service to be high status, you know, if you leave Lee Kuan Yew's autobiography about Singapore, one of the things he set out to do very early on was he said, I want the smartest people in Singapore not going into consulting or finance or like I want government officials to be the highest status people in Singapore. I'm going to pay them super well. I'm going to have programs that reinforce this idea that, you know, the biggest honor you can get coming out of college is they have this scholarship that helps pay for college. That's kind of like ROTC, except after you graduate, instead of going to serve in the military, you have to go do a few years in a government agency. That's the part about status as a service, which I think people misunderstand. I'm not saying that we should amplify status games all over the place. I just think status is so powerful and incentive because of human nature. Then we need to think very carefully about what we make high status inside the products that we build.
1: Can I go a little bit deeper here and say, I guess, you on status-seeking monkeys and I totally agree with you. But do you not think that's just because 90% of people are fundamentally very insecure and egocentric and the 10% who are actually very comfortable with themselves, don't give a fuck about status.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I guess it's always tricky talking about human nature. On the one hand, I think we all recognize the universal elements of human nature in ourselves. As I said, you know, in my piece, I have one line which says, one of the easiest ways to control your own happiness is not to measure Your status by someone else's scoreboard. But, you know, working in tech, I would say in particular and living in the Bay Area, you do see people who are just unbelievably wealthy, who are still very unhappy because there's always, you know, that next person who's more successful. I mean, tech is one of those like complex adaptive systems, which behaves by power laws, right? Kind of the Pareto distribution of status and wealth in Silicon Valley is always going to bother some people. There's a heavy skew to it. I think that's probably part of it. What do you think? I mean, you know a lot of people in tech as well. I,
1: I agree totally. And I would consider myself a status seeker, but I would consider that because I am fundamentally insecure and vulnerable. And I know some of the most powerful and brilliant people in the world who are exactly the same and still seeking status. And then others who really do not give a shit about it. And yeah, stay it.
0: yeah. It is, right? The feed and these algorithms and social media as a concept, essentially the one thing they have done is they've elevated the status game to just a scale we've never had in human history.
1: Challenge more is, like status alone is not what's attractive. But it's like status for me is deal flow. It's L P dollars. Yeah. winning investments. Sure. It's the answer benefits that status brings, which makes status the coveted asset that it is for me and for many others.
0: Oh, for sure. Especially on Twitter now, I feel like the new meta for investors is to build a personal brand on Twitter. And the way you do that is the tweet storms. (laughs) That's a classic example of a optimal status seeking tactic within Twitter that has been adopted by the universe of players. Anytime there's a new S1 out, anytime there's some hot growth company in China. It's a race to be the first person to put out the tweet storm breaking down, you know, why is Shein so popular? What does the S1 for, you know, Peloton tell us about the state of the fitness market? Yeah, you're right. It does translate into deal flow.
1: Can I ask, you know, this was such a seminal piece and actually Parker Conrad at Rippling messaged me last night saying, hey, I loved it. It was so transformational to how I think about social networks. You have to ask him, what was the response? Did it lead to job offers? Did it lead to Consulting. For you personally, what was the response?
0: Yeah, I think similar to what you were saying about, you know, your brand leading to deal flow and things, there's some equivalent, right? If you write a piece that goes viral online, you will have people from different companies ask to grab coffee with you. You will get different offers, job offers, because, you know, that piece then attaches to your personal brand. For a lot of people, I felt like, to me in hindsight, it's not like I'm the first person to ever write about status in history. There have been a lot of sociologists who have studied the topic and studied social capital, I find social capital very compelling to study because I don't think we study social capital with as much rigor as maybe financial capital. But in many ways, it's just as predictable a medium. I think maybe I was just one of the first to link social capital theory to tech products. So it's fun. I think the biggest thing that I enjoy coming out of writing pieces is I get to meet a lot of people from all over the world who write me, you know, especially from other countries. So some random person translated my piece into Chinese, and it went viral in China. So I got invites to go to China and speak at various companies, I got a lot of outreach from entrepreneurs in India. And it's always fascinating to me to hear about how status dynamics are localized to different markets. On the one hand, status is a universal human impulse. On the other hand, different cultures have different things that they consider high status. And so understanding those gave me a better sense of why some products work in some countries and not in others.
1: I mean this respectfully before we dive into the world of media, but you could join any venture firm and get paid millions of dollars and have millions and millions of dollars in carry, Eugene. What leaves you the independent, wonderful, free-thinking person that you are when you could be corrupted by the world of media <laughs> so
0: Yeah, you know, I spent the last few years thinking about it and I've dabbled a little in angel investing and thought about, you know, whether to go in-house somewhere. I just think that I still want to take another go in the operating side, just because I think theorizing about things is interesting. Practicing it is still like a different type of fulfillment that feels really high leverage to me. As you know, there's probably never been a better time to raise capital for any different idea. It feels like tech is actually still, you know, for as influential as the internet and tech has been in the last few decades, it actually still feels early in its penetration of the world as a whole, its impact on the world. I don't know, in many ways, while it's a good time to be an investor, it's also just a very crowded market. There's just so much capital. Whereas if you're on the operating side, you have the advantage of just all this capital chasing after ideas. I still feel like the largest impact of the internet and tech on the world is still ahead of us. And it's, it's still fun to be a part of that, as long as you feel like you have the energy to do it. And I still feel like I do. Now,
1: yeah. I do want to ask you, you talking about competitive industries there. One thing that's become striking for me, is how competitive media has become over the last five or six years yeah Yeah, when it started honestly easy to scale podcasts to the scale we are now hard 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 tell me why do you believe entertainment has now become zero sum
0: you know I'm old enough to remember when all of the different forms of media in my life were spatially uh, separated from each other what I mean by that was when I was a kid in high school I would watch television in our family room because that's where our TV was I would watch movies at the movie theater. That's where you went to watch movies. I would listen to music in the car because that's where the uh, cassette tape player and the radio were. And I would play video games in my bedroom because that's where my computer was. That meant that each of those industries, they kind of regarded their competitors as other companies in their same industry. As you know, the ever connected smartphone and the internet has changed that dynamic completely. Now, every time I unlock my phone, I have every one of those things that I just talked about on my phone at my disposal. So So I actually get the choice of what I want to do at that moment. And it's the same thing that happened in newspapers. So newspapers used to come, get delivered to your doorstep, and they had the front page, the business section, the auto section, the sports page. They kind of determined what your allocation of each type of content was. But we're in the age of infinite content and infinite user choice. And when that happens, the market share of each of these industries is suddenly up for grabs. If you love video games far more than you love movies or television, you can play video games all day. If you like music more than you like video games, you can listen to infinite libraries of music forever and never finish. What that has done essentially is it puts all these industries into competition with each other in the attention economy. And we know that until we figure out a way to parallel process our brains, there's a finite amount of time in the day that we can allocate our attention. And what makes this hard and tricky for many industries is now, no matter what medium you work in, whether it's TV or film or music or books or whatever, you compete with the strongest competitor on every skill, regardless of industry. So you might say, well, movies are kind of a linear medium that you just consume. They're not interactive. You know, you just go and sit in the theater and watch a movie. Well, video games like Fortnite are social, they're interactive, and you don't have that going for you if you're making movies. But tough luck because actually games are that way and they're going to keep iterating games. And that's why you know when Reed Hastings of Netflix said our biggest competitor is Fortnite or sleep when he says things like that. In fact, everything competes with everything for attention, and that's tricky. You know, if you are the commissioner of a sports league, you might say, "Wow, it was great. For decades, we had a monopoly essentially on sort of this like geographic tribalism." You'd be like, "Well, I'm a Yankees fan, and you feel really connected to other Yankees fan it gives you this like rush of being you know tribally affiliated well now a generation of kids grows up and they're like hey actually i can get that same thing from video games from social media maybe i don't need sports to get that same rush that's the hard part because i think people who grew up in these industries aren't used to competing with companies from other verticals i'm attaching the status as a service blog post in the show notes but he's also recently come out with an update on graph design called and you will know us by the company we keep he's got very good meditations on social networks also check out american idol by the way for his series on tiktok and finally if you are really really deep into
1: platform building and technology strategy make sure to check out invisible asymptotes his original claim to fame